Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. omnibus bill passed during the Minnesota legislative session this year expands background checks and implements a red flag law authorizing extreme risk protection orders. This allows a family member or law enforcement to petition a court to suspend someone's access to guns if deemed a harm to themselves or others. I'm Jaron Peterson-Dean and Maggie Emery, Executive Director for Protect Minnesota, is my guest today. We'll be talking about the new gun legislation and ongoing work being done by the organization. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sure the past few months have been exciting and challenging, and I hope you've been able to get some rest and take some time to recharge, maybe celebrate. Absolutely. There's a lot to celebrate that came out of this legislative session. So partners and community members, activists, we've been seeing a lot of folks who are just so happy and relieved after decades of advocating for these um, for these bills and this really crucial legislation. So it's been an exciting time. Protect Minnesota has been working on gun violence prevention since the early 90s. Have there been more consequential years than this during the organization's history, or is this sort of a banner year? It's very challenging to get movement around gun violence prevention bills. So I would say a year like this, where we got multiple pieces of really crucial life-saving legislation passed are few and far between. One thing that I that I will point out that was really exciting and consequential for our organization in gun violence prevention in Minnesota is that back in the early aughts, we did, um, we were really crucial in passing the first piece of legislation in the country that stops those with um, felony convictions for domestic violence for being able to purchase a firearm. Um, And that legislation went on to be used as the model for the federal piece of legislation. So that was another crucial victory for our organization. But, you know, that was over a decade ago now. And it's been a really, really hard push to get more progress in this area. So we're really excited. And I would say this is definitely a banner year for Protect Minnesota and gun violence prevention in Minnesota. I couldn't agree more. Can you explain why expanded background checks and red flag laws are so important to public safety for people who may not truly understand that? Absolutely. So these pieces of legislation do different things. So you provided a really nice explanation of what extremist protection orders do. One thing to note around ERPO laws is that in Minnesota, the vast majority of our gun deaths are firearm suicides, like averaged out over the last decade, almost 80%. ERPOs are useful in preventing mass shootings, and that's super important. But the way that we're really hopeful that they'll be implemented in Minnesota is in the case of firearm suicides and helping to reduce 
the accessibility of firearms to people who are in active suicidal crisis until they're able to obtain the help that they need. So in some states where ERPOs have been implemented, they've seen a reduction in firearm suicides from anywhere from 11 to 14%. We lose almost 400 people a year in Minnesota to firearm suicides. So if you think about those numbers, that could easily be, you know, 40, 50, 60 people um, that were able to save annually by the implementation of this law. So uh, when we say life-saving, we're not exaggerating. That's a true benefit of this legislation. Universal background checks, the way that these work is in Minnesota and many other states. In the past, the only gun sale that was required to have a background check done was that uh, sold by a federally licensed firearm dealer. But if I wanna sell a firearm to my neighbor or my cousin or some guy on the internet, I was not required to do a background check to ensure that that person was legally able to purchase and carry that firearm. There are not very many reasons that someone would be um, barred from carrying a firearm. If you are legally barred from owning or purchasing a firearm, there's a good and serious reason. So this legislation really works to keep the firearms and guns out of the hands of people who have violent crime felonies, have um, domestic assault felonies on their records. Thank you. Are there other changes that Protect Minnesota had hoped for that didn't get sufficient support? And if so, why do you think that is? So there were a couple things that we were really hopeful for this year that didn't make it across the finish line. One that I would pull out is safe storage provisions. There was a bill introduced by Representative Jamie Becker-Finn that would have mandated that if you are a firearm owner, you keep that stored, unloaded, and locked. Um, that, that prevents access from children who maybe aren't trained, from people in crisis who have a nefarious intention with that firearm, or even for, you know, a child who wants to use that firearm, wants to take it to school just to show it off and might end up accidentally discharging it. So we weren't able to get that legislation over the finish line this time. You know, I think our culture around firearms makes something like that seem extreme to some legislators, even though gun violence prevention legislation is supported by the vast majority of Minnesotans. And a bill like this enjoys broad support, but because of the false narrative around guns, um, we just, we, we couldn't garner the support that it needed to pass this legislative session. Protect Minnesota started as a coalition of 16 statewide groups under the banner of Citizens for a Safer Minnesota. I imagine that the efforts this year took a broad coalition to bring about this success. Do you feel like there's something unique that Protect Minnesota brought to this effort? Yeah, absolutely. So Protect Minnesota is the only state-based, statewide gun violence prevention group in Minnesota. And we are very, very fortunate to have incredible coalition partners on every level. You know, we had incredible efforts from national organizations like Giffords and Everytown who were here supporting gun violence prevention legislation. There were incredible efforts from Moms Demand Action volunteers, and there were incredible efforts from local groups, you know, community violence intervention groups and gun violence prevention groups that are doing work more locally. 
Um, but the unique spot that Protect Minnesota has in all this is that we talk to everybody. We're right in the middle. We talk to the national groups. We talk to the local groups. And because we know everybody, we can coordinate and collaborate efforts from the local level to the national level and everywhere in between. So we really serve the convener role bringing everyone's efforts together, making sure everyone who's impacted by gun violence shows up and gets a voice in the legislative process. Maggie, do you mind telling us how you became involved in gun violence prevention? A recent study found that one in five Americans has lost a family member to gun violence. I'm not unique in that uh, I have lost family members to gun violence, and I've also lost a family member to prison for committing an act of gun violence. So this has been something that's always been present in my life since I was a little kid, and I've never known a family that wasn't impacted by gun violence, probably like many of your listeners. And what's always been really unique about gun violence in my mind is that every death caused by gun violence is preventable. It's not like cancer. It's it's not like a disease. I mean, it, it, it is a disease in some ways. It is a public health epidemic, but every single death caused by gun violence is a preventable death. And that's something that we all have a role in. And that's something that um, we need to widely acknowledge. And if we all come together, I believe that we can end gun violence in our state, in our country. I don't think that's a pipe dream. I agree. I believe the Minnesota Sheriff's Association supported expanded background checks and the red flag provision, yet some local sheriffs have been vocal in their opposition, even threatening not to enforce those. Have you seen more support for gun safety laws and programs from law enforcement in the last few years? And why do you think this is happening? So, you know, I would say that one is a sticky wicket for sure. You know, there's kind of two things at play here, right? One is that law enforcement are on the front lines of the gun violence epidemic. They see people who are dying from gun violence every day. They're doing welfare checks on folks who have committed firearm suicide. They know the impact that gun violence has on our community. On the other hand, there's a body of research that supports that there's a real culture of aggression in policing. There's a real culture of white supremacy that's permeated our police forces. And while we're very grateful for the partnership of law enforcement agencies who understand how crucial it is that we have basic gun violence prevention legislation in place, there's a real cultural, um, there are some cultural issues with a lot of the way that policing is done, not just in Minnesota, but in America. And those two things are really at odds with one another. That's definitely a hard dynamic to navigate, I'm sure. Were you able to speak to people who attended the signing of the bill by Governor Walls? And have they shared, like, what was what was it like for them to be in the room when this happened? You know, we were lucky in that the governor um, wanted to have survivors of gun violence in the room, wanted there to be folks who have been working on this issue for decades and decades. So a number of our partners and allies and volunteers were able to be there. And what I've heard is that it was an incredibly cathartic, joyful, and sorrowful experience. You know, it's wonderful that we have these bills in Minnesota now and that this legislation is going to save lives. I think it's very tragic for those who have lost loved ones to preventable deaths that 
this legislation didn't exist until now. So I think it was a mixture of of joy and also, you know, sorrow and remembrance for those that we've lost um, that that didn't need to be lost. I I lost a loved one to gun violence, and we've shared that on this podcast as well. And um, I experienced those same feelings. I wasn't in the room, but that feeling of relief that maybe we are starting to move forward, but also sadness that it was too late for us. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I definitely understand all of those feelings. Lobbying for changes in gun laws was a key focus this year, but what other strategies is Protect Minnesota using to prevent or reduce gun violence? I think there's so much that we can be doing to prevent gun violence outside of the legislature that we really need a spotlight on, right? So one thing that I would pull out that we're really focusing on is um, safe storage, is that safe storage piece of things. Almost half of Minnesotans own guns, but less than half of Minnesotan gun owners practice safe storage on a regular basis. This is a super easy thing to do if you're a gun owner. Do it right now. Put your firearm in a biometric safe that only you can access with your fingerprint. Take the ammunition out of that firearm. Store it separately in a different lock safe. Ideally, um, this is going to prevent, you know, a stolen firearm situation. It's going to prevent unintended child access. It's going to prevent all kinds of things that you as a gun owner don't want your gun to be used for. That's a super huge focus for Protect Minnesota. And I think gun violence prevention in general right now. Um, Another thing that's a huge focus for us right now is research, figuring out where and why does gun violence happen and doing some research around strategies that we're implementing to end it, to see if they're actually effective. One piece that I want to share right now is we're embarking on a research project around um, gun storage mapping and um, clinician counseling. So we're creating some some maps in counties with particularly high rates of gun violence that display where folks can go and have their guns stored off-site, not in their home, in case they or someone else in their home isn't in crisis and just needs a break in access to those firearms, um, somewhere where they can put those guns, they know they won't have immediate access to them. And um, we're we're partnering with clinics in these counties to distribute these storage maps um, so that when someone comes to the doctor and they're screened by their doctor, do you have firearms in the home? Are they safely stored? Um, are you displaying, you know, signs of crisis or suicidality? Then the clinician can offer this tool right in that counseling session. Here's somewhere that you can go today to get that firearm out of the, your home while you or your family member or loved one seeks the help that they need. We're really hopeful about this. We think it's a first of its kind strategy that hasn't been piloted anywhere else. And you know, we're embarking on a multi-year research study to see if this is an effective method. And and if it is, which we're hopeful that it is, that that could be something that is implemented elsewhere to save lives. So I would pull out research as another pillar of the work that we do that um, is super important in preventing gun violence. And I would also say that's something that hasn't happened for a long time because there's been a block on funding for gun violence prevention research from the federal government. So the ability to do this is really exciting and it's something that's been underdone and underfunded. And then I think, you know, 
I would pull out a third pillar, which is just thinking of gun violence as a public health issue, right? And addressing this in the same way that you would address COVID or cancer or um, heart attacks. You know, what are prevention strategies? Because if we only react and we don't prevent on a societal level, we'll never end gun violence. It's not the only work that we do, but it's a really important piece of the work that Protect Minnesota does. And that needs to happen in the gun violence prevention movement. I just read the book, The Violence Project, and I would recommend that to listeners who are interested in some of the research that has been done on um, gun violence. I I was um, horrified and I learned a lot. I would just love to plug in a little bit there. I mean, so The Violence Project was written by two researchers here, based here in Minnesota, and they did a deep dive on mass shootings. And what is the cause of mass shootings? Why do people commit mass shootings? And what are some solutions around that? It's a really impactful and important book. Maggie, is there anything you would like gun owners to be particularly aware of? Do not store your gun in your car. Um, This is terrible safe storage practice. I I hate to phrase it like this, but if you're storing your gun in your car, your glove box, you're asking for that firearm to get stolen. Please don't keep it in your car. Please leave that firearm at home if you are traveling, if you're going to be somewhere um, that you're not able to, you know, that you're not carrying that gun on you, then please store it safely at home. Do not leave it in your car. There's no good way to secure it safely in your vehicle. Um, And that's, you know, a primary way that we're seeing firearms get stolen and get flowed into the wrong hands. Interesting that that could have been a direct connection in my own story as a survivor of gun violence. And I had honestly not really ever thought much about guns and cars. And especially these days when we're hearing a lot about cars being stolen, it's just, um, I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you because this is already bringing up things I hadn't considered. Sort of on that note, As a survivor of gun violence, I know the power of personal stories. Is there one that you'd like to share to help our listeners understand the importance of this work? Sure. I mean, I I will talk a little bit about about my cousin, Chad, who, when he was 18 years old, was at a party and was under the influence of alcohol and shot someone and went to prison. And, you know, that changed his life. When you're 18 years old, you have a whole world in front of you. And when you go to prison, that world goes away. And I think when we talk about gun violence, we so often talk about the folks who die and that, you know, that is a real tragedy, but we have to, you know, if we're going to end gun violence, we have to think about why does gun violence happen in the first place? Why do people commit acts of gun violence? Um, And I think, you know, it starts with looking at who's doing this? What resources could they have had in place that would have prevented this act of gun violence? You know, I know for, for my cousin, there was poverty involved. There was, um, you know, there was a lack of access to resources like housing and education, regular employment, all of these kind of pieces that so many of us take for granted that are so unavailable to so many in the same demographics that are getting involved in gun violence, whether as perpetrators or as victims. And I think we really have to think about that 
if we're going to end gun violence. I couldn't agree more. I feel like as a society, we make these judgments about people who are committing acts of gun violence, yet we are all responsible for this problem, the problems that are creating these acts of violence or the, the opportunities for these acts of violence. And it isn't just losing someone who was shot and killed, but it's also losing the people who have done the act of it. And they deserve to be grieved also. Yeah, well, and thank you for saying that, because I think, you know, that can be really difficult when you've lost someone to gun violence. And um, it it can be really hard to have compassion for the person who committed that act. And, you know, it's it's each individual survivor's choice, you know, what what level of compassion that they're able to feel towards someone, um, someone who who took a, a loved one away from them. But I think if we don't talk about what are the causes of gun violence and why do people make that choice, we just can't end it. So we got we have to start there the same way that we we talk about, you know, how can we prevent COVID? We wear masks, we socially distance. There are strategies around that. We have to talk about, you know, how can we prevent gun violence? We make sure everyone has um, pathways away from gun violence. I like how you phrase that pathways away from gun violence and also shown opportunities other than gun violence, um, particularly just based on my experience. I've learned a lot about people who commit gun violence, and I think there's a lot of feelings of values and how people are acting out in their own values in regards to loyalty, respect which we may share those values with people, but have very different ways of displaying and honoring those values. And I think that can get tricky too. Well, and I think, you know, you want to take a look at, you know, who's committing acts of gun violence. It's folks who are committing acts of community gun violence are largely young. They're under 40 years old. Their brains are squishy. They haven't grown up into the person that they're going to be a person with the maturity to see, you know, acting out in the way that I've seen others act out in the way that's been modeled for me is wrong. And I think it's a lot easier to say, I saw my mentors, I saw the people in my neighborhood acting in this way, but I'm going to choose not to act in this way. It's much easier with the benefit of time and hindsight than it is when you're a young person. And, you know, I think we've all been young and desperately wanting to, you know, prove ourselves and, and show the world, um, show the people who we're closest to, um, that we want to be like them. So I think, you know, that's a big piece of it too. Is there anything else you'd like to make sure we talk about before we end our conversation today? So one thing that we didn't really touch on at all is um, community violence intervention funding, which was a huge legislative priority for us this session as well. So community violence intervention is a strategy that's complementary to existing public safety measures. Um, and it is when validated, like validated messengers within a community go out and literally patrol the streets. They interrupt conflict It's and violence. It's right there in the name. So in some cases that can look like extending resources to folks who are in crisis. In some cases it can look like 
literally putting their body in between two people who are pointing guns at one another and stopping that shooting before it happens. This is a super effective method to preventing gun violence. Um, it comes from folks who are embedded in the community, know where the trouble is going to be, where the drama is, and know how to get a head start on preventing that before it erupts into violence. So we were really, really happy. We got $71 million over the next five years in funding for these strategies. And I just wanted to put an emphasis on that because it's a really successful and effective way to prevent community gun violence. And I just wanted to highlight the workers who are doing that and the importance of the work that they do. Thank you for bringing them into this conversation. If our listeners out there are wondering how they can get involved in gun violence prevention or ways that they can help, what would you suggest? So obviously, you know, I put in a plug for getting involved with Protect Minnesota. You can go right to our website, protectmn.org, um, and sign up to join our newsletter uh, list where you'll get action alerts from us and our newsletter so you can see what, what we're up to, what's going on. We've got a ton of really great events this summer. And beyond that, you know, I would say there's a lot of local groups who are doing really great work. I would encourage you to look into what's already going on in your community. And if I could stress, you know, one thing that you can do this summer to prevent gun violence, two things. One, if you're a gun owner, safely secure it. If you are in relationship with folks who are gun owners and are not safely securing their firearms, ask them to before you come to their homes. Um, it's an, a little bit of an awkward conversation to have, but it saves lives. Um, the other thing I would say, and this is you know validated by research from the Violence Project and other places, is that um, the number one thing that any of us can do to prevent gun violence in our community is to be a relationship builder. Loneliness is a huge driver of gun violence. Folks feeling like they're not upheld by their community and they have nowhere to turn when they're in crisis. So this seems a little bit trite, but it's truly not. Um, extend kindness, extend community, extend relationship, be a resource for the people that you love in your community, and extend kindness wherever you can. Um, it truly is a violence prevention method. Thank you. Maggie, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Additional information on Protect Minnesota and gun violence is available at protectmn.org with additional links available in our episode program notes. Maggie, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. This has been a wonderful conversation. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.